felt that there was a, an absence of real thoughtful dialogue about some of the issues um, in education. Parents and educators on either side are terrified of speaking up in a public forum because they're gonna get doxxed or assaulted or attacked. And we've got to work like heck to create room and opportunity um, for Americans, for parents, for educators. Welcome to In Piazza. I'm Jeannie Allen. My partner, Michael Moe, is out today traveling the globe. But today at In Piazza, I'm super excited to welcome two distinguished academics and prolific authors, Rick Hess and Pedro Nagera, who share a passion for educational excellence, sometimes have differing views on how to get there, but firmly believe there's important common ground between them. Pedro is a veteran educator, commentator, thought leader, and dean of the University of Southern California's Rossier School of Education. Uh, Rick, uh, an old friend, is equally impressive, director of education studies at AEI, prolific author, and I was going to say all sorts of stuff about Penn and Harvard and everywhere else, but let's just say um, between the two of them, they probably taught and instructed people at about 30 universities, and I think I counted 16 books uh, between both of you. So is that right? And welcome, guys. <laughs> Good to be with you, Jeannie. So that is a Herculean effort. I've done a couple editing and, um, and it's major. And um, one of the many reasons I wanted to make sure that we had you guys on is to talk about your latest book, uh, which is about a theme that so many of us really want today, A Search for Common Ground, uh, described basically as a Socratic dialogue between the two. And one reviewer noted that um, it's a Socratic dialogue between two people often on opposite sides of the ideological aisle and kind of like, I don't know what you think, maybe along the lines of a previous, the Adams-Jefferson letters. That, for those that's of you, uh, quite a compliment. Right? I mean, <laughs> for those you're going to you model yourself on something, you might as, might as well model yourself on, uh, you know, the best. So Rick and Pedro, we started in Piazza to help um, bring back this notion of that, uh, that square, the place where you talked about people's kids, you caught up in what they were doing, you uh, bantered about politics. As you guys both know, politics was, was born at the Piazza, or some of us like to believe. So let's say we're in the Piazza. And you guys are walking by and we go, Chow, how are you doing? What's going on? Tell me about your book. Why did you write a book? Why wouldn't you just um, keep doing what you're doing? Pedro? So I, I think both Rick and I felt, um, you know, and Rick, it was Rick's idea. And I, I readily agreed to participate with him in this. But we felt that there was a, an absence of real thoughtful dialogue about some of the issues um, in education that contributed to a lot of polarization. And previous to, I mean, for many years, um, and these debates have been going on and on about charter schools, about choice, about standardized testing. And we said, you know, what we really need is to kind of um, a more nuanced debate that acknowledges the complexity of the issues and that allows us to probe them more deeply. And that's what uh, we try to do in the book is to really dig deeper in the issues 
And, and because we did, I think that's where we were able to see some common ground. Yeah, and I mean, Jeannie, I mean, you and I have both been in D.C. through long eras of, quote unquote, bipartisanship. Uh, and I think we've sometimes been frustrated that bipartisanship can lead to really unhelpful things for kids, too. So there's no magic in getting along. But I think, you know, Pedro and I've known each other um, 20 years since uh, he was on faculty at Harvard and he had me up to give a job talk. And people were like, yeah, we're not bringing that guy here. We're not bringing that guy back here at, at a minimum. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, when we, we don't agree on a lot, but, you know, I think we respect the heck out of each other. We understand that the fact that we disagree isn't really driven by different values, but by different life experience, by how we understand the world. And we can actually learn a lot from each other. And we can sometimes work really effectively together if we can stop making the first question, do you agree with me? And instead talk about why do we disagree? Where do we agree? And is there room in there for us to actually solve problems for kids? And that's a muscle. And it's a muscle that ed schools, I don't think really teach principals or superintendents nowadays. It's a muscle that has been eroded by the way folks engage on social media. Um, it's a muscle that's more important in education than anywhere else. And so Pedro and I, I think what we, this was partly trying to go to the gym for this stuff. It was trying to give people an example of what this looks like, what it feels like, and to really work at it at length ourselves and try to give people a vision of how you start to rebuild some of these atrophied muscles that are so important for the work we do. Well, in fact, the fact that you guys do it in the Socratic way, Socratic dialogue was all about disagreement. It was about sharing facts, sharing analysis, disagreeing and pushing yourselves and not walking away with like your hand on your waist and your finger in the air saying, see, you know, you guys are all like X. So let me ask you both um, uh, to that end. And I'd love you to share kind of your favorite chapters as well. But teacher pay, for example, really interesting back and forth about teacher pay that I don't think we get into because either one side says you just hate teachers, you don't realize how they work which you allude to. And uh, the other side says, no, you don't understand. We just don't want to teach mediocrity. Help us out here who have not read, um, understand where you guys came down there. Yeah, you know, and um, I just want to reinforce the point you just made. It's so easy to just vilify the people you disagree with. And on this issue, we decided really to explore. And um, I think we did find a lot of common ground in future pay because we both agree yeah, teachers should be paid more. We need to attract talented people into this profession who will stay and get good at it. But then they also have to, we have to ensure that they're actually good. And there has to be evidence that they're serving kids well and has to be accountability. That it shouldn't be so difficult to remove teachers who are ineffective and shouldn't be in classrooms. Um, and, and we acknowledge that sometimes unions uh, make the job of creating school systems that are responsive to the needs of their communities is very difficult. Um, and we saw this um, you know, in the, some of the battles over school uh, reopenings um, in many parts of the country. So um, you know, this is an example where really listening and uh, uh, rather than simply positioning ourselves um, is helpful. Yeah, you, you Rick, had, go ahead. Just a moment ago about well, why I wrote the book. And I think this is one reason we did this as a book rather than just as magazine articles, or rather than just a, a bunch of tweets. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bunch of tweets. Because 
you know, when you write a book, there's a certain quietude that settles in. Pedro and I had six months of trading these missives back and forth. We didn't have to worry about how they were going to play in the cheap seats. We didn't have to worry about an individual sentence being taken out of context. We were just trading our thoughts and we could sleep on what each other said and respond. And so, for instance, um, you know, it's weird. The way the teacher pay debate gets framed, I get frustrated to no end because I don't want to just throw more money at teachers. When the Biden administration or Kamala Harris on the campaign trail said 30 billion, I'm like, no, absolutely not. It's going to go into pensions and health care. It's going to be raises across the board, regardless to how valuable a given teacher is or how effective that educator is for the kids they serve. So if you ask me, should we pump more money into teacher pay? I'm like, hell no. But if the question is, do you think people who do the teach the job of teaching well should be paid more? Then I'm absolutely yes. And how do we rethink the teaching job? So people are doing more of what's valuable for kids and that we're thinking how to redesign those positions. And once, we, once that becomes a conversation, guys like me and Pedro, who otherwise sometimes just butting heads on talk radio, are suddenly in a much more constructive, much more interesting conversation about how do we do these things where we actually do find a lot of common ground. And how do you square uh, the problem of pay among, and should we be concerned about the status of pay among some inner city private schools? I was in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago and I almost spit out my coffee literally when the gentleman walking me through a school in one of the many, but literally it's considered the worst neighborhood, which was chock full of beautiful little black and brown kids, told me his starting pay is $42,000 and they try to get people up to 48. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I know 25 year olds who are making more than that pushing paper in Washington, DC. No offense to all of you out there who probably hate me even more than they do now. You know, so how do we, I get that some people believe that we shouldn't be supporting it, but I just thought any teacher should have a floor. Like Rick, you know, I used to be at your like, dinners and whatever, we'd have these conversations and I'd always say like, I would go big government in a heartbeat for that. You know, we have several cities right now, uh, to speak to your point, uh, Gene, that where you literally, teachers can't afford to live in the city. The, the cost of housing is too high. So teachers have commutes. This is true in LA, it's true in San Francisco. It's increasingly true in places like DC and New York. They have hour and hour and a half long commute to get to a job that, that, that is barely paying them a livable wage. We're right now across the country, we're seeing teachers leaving the profession in droves. It's a problem. We have a teacher shortage. And uh, Linda Darling Hammond, my friend, often says, we don't have a shortage of teachers. We have a shortage of people willing to take those jobs. Mm -hmm. So we do need to address this problem. And, um, and, and it's, it's systemic and uh, there are no easy solutions, but creating the floor, as you said, I think is one part of it. Rick? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things going on. One is, you know, this is partly a problem we've created. Um, I think we use licensure systems, which are not very good at ensuring that the people who are hired into the profession can do it well, but that also become a huge bottleneck, especially, say, for mid-career folks who would love to teach for 20 years. They're 40. They've actually got some money in the bank. They've been professionals, um, educated, and appealing. This is not the way the world worked 75 years ago. So our systems of hiring and training just weren't configured for it. 
Um, nonetheless, those bottlenecks are real and we dissuade lots of people who could be effective in classrooms. And if you come in at 40 or 45 in the 21st century, you could very well be looking, to Pedro's point, at a two-decade career in the classroom. And you have a lot of wisdom and frequently a lot of parental experience to share. So partly it's getting people in. Partly it's, look, the job description. Healthcare um, ha has a different way of approaching this. We have 6 million adults in American education and 3.5 million are teachers. And average teacher pay, according to the NEA, nationally is about $59,000 a year, plus salary and benefits. Um, average pay in the American healthcare sector for 7 million adults is about 67,000. So a little higher, but not a ton higher. But what happens is that if you're exquisitely trained, if you have really valuable skills, you're an orthopedic surgeon, kind of the equivalent of somebody who has really mastered the elements of say building early childhood literacy, you're making a lot of money. And then people who come in and only do support work for five or eight years, emergency medical techs or RNs are much less exquisitely trained, which means they have less sunk in and they don't necessarily stay as long, but it's okay because they work in teams where they are supporting the people who have the skills that actually make an enormous difference for the clients they're serving. So for me, part of this is being sympathetic to your and Pedro's larger point about, look, I'm, a, I'm certainly open to spending more money on people who work as educators, but we've got to think about how we're doing it. And we got to think about the bottlenecks we created. But I also need part of that conversation to be are we, I want to make sure we're not paying really good teachers to watch kids eat lunch for 40 minutes every day, right. pay really good teachers to watch kids get on and off of buses for 28 minutes a day, paying really good teachers. I want to make sure that if we're paying people like the professionals they are, that we're finding out ways to make sure we're using their skills in a way that impact kids. And it seems to me this all needs to be part of the same conversation. Which then crosses into what you and I would start saying, which is that's why education choice or freedom is so important because if you follow the market line, and I know this is one of those areas that the Forbes review said, you know, this was one of the unbridgeable um, issues. But, but honestly, if you had the exact same amount of money flowing from Philadelphia school district that flows into those schools into the Catholic school in inner city Philadelphia, you would immediately get those salaries boosted. Um, and then those kids may have more access and the, and the parents would have more options. So you didn't bridge that in a big way in the book. Um, why not? And, uh, and, and does choice settle that issue in some ways, Rick? And Pedro, if not, why not? Go ahead, Rick. Um, you know, I, I think for, for me, uh, there's two pieces. I mean, obviously, I, I, I generally support choice, broad, you know, broad spectrum choice. I like education savings accounts and learning pods and vouchers and charters, although I'm less excited about charters than I was before they became highly ideological and politicized. Uh, but, but I support choice because I think parents uh, have the right to find a learning environment that works with their kids. And I think educators have the right to find a learning environment that suits their pedagogy and approach. Um, but I think we've also seen that choice is not necessarily the same thing as flexibility. Lots of private schools and lots of charter schools look exactly like the district schools around them as far as the school day, as long as how they pay teachers, as far as how they use teachers. So I think choice mechanisms can help create room for us to rethink these things. But I think for a lot of reasons uh, related, you know, you've written, Jeannie, about institutional isomorphism. Uh, there's inertia at play. There's habits. There's captive labor markets. But for a lot of reasons, we have not actually seen choice 
lead to that kind of dynamism that, you know, that I'd like to see. But Pedro, I mean, you know, Pedro, I don't know. I, I think like with Teacher Pay, Pedro and I are actually able to find a lot more points of commonality on some of the choice dynamics than you might expect. But at the end of the day, on the policy, we come out in different places. A shout out with gratitude to Ed Mentum, run by the fabulous Jamie Candy, for supporting this week's In Piazza podcast. As a partner to over 8,000 districts in all 50 states and schools across 75 countries, Ed Mentum works to drive rigor and innovation in delivering digital curriculum, proven assessments, and educational services. They jumped in when COVID happened and demonstrated how critical their work was to keeping kids going no matter where they were. So thank you so much to Jamie and the Edmentum team for helping us bring Pedro and Rick to you this week. So, you know, I visited some of those um, independent schools you described in Philly. And, um, you know, I, I, I know they are serving um, poor Black and Latino kids. At the same time, what I've seen over and over again is um, an inability to ensure that, this, that the charter schools getting the money are serving kids well. I just posted uh, an article um, by a, a, a charter authorizer in DC, uh, Steve Birnbaum, and um, he reflected on six years of serving on the board and the schools he's seeing and uh, his disappointment. Um, and I've seen the same thing. Charters are a mixed bag. And, um, and I think that, you know, when, when we set something up as the savior of public education, um, we, again, fall the risk of, uh, there's no panacea. And, and simply creating charters without looking at the ways in which they may exacerbate inequity does not make a solution. So, um, I'm not opposed to charter schools. I, I, I've been to many that I think are excellent. I'm not opposed to creating a system that allows for greater choice if it's not the schools that choose, but mm -hmm. parents that choose, mm -hmm. right? And I, what I've seen is that some charters are deliberately finding ways to get rid of the kids who are the most disadvantaged, uh, who are harder to serve, which means those kids end up back in the public schools um, and what we know is that when you concentrate the most disadvantaged kids in certain schools, the likelihood that those schools will continue to fail goes way up. So as long as we don't approach this as though there's simply a simple solution to a complex problem, um, then I think we're in a better position to think carefully about what kind of system works. I think if you're gonna serve kids who are high need, you need to be able to select your teachers. You need the flexibility a charter provides, but you also need some assurance that that school's gonna serve those kids well. And if we were standing at a cocktail party um, or a lunch or an affair, wherever anyone socializes, it used to be that if you said something like that, Pedro, there would be a dialogue. And that for a lot of us doesn't happen anymore. And is that, you know, the, this, this, this political toxicity um, and the other things that are happening, how much of that, now again, put, put aside the, the horrible, very bad, no good years, couple of years we've had. But even before that, have we lost 
Um, have we lost that ability because we're not teaching it? We're not modeling it? Is it part of this issue that we're not agreeing to teach students those values if they are considered values, right? So could we have those cocktail parties again, conversations? Could we get together at the block party and be with people who don't agree with us um, a little bit more if we were also expecting that of our kids? How much do we teach that? Well, I think there's a couple different things uh, going on. I mean, I think one is this ability to engage one another. And can we actually listen and hear one another and respond without, um, without racing to kind of our team, red or blue, and responding? Um, I think a second is the media, the mechanisms we use, that it's a whole lot easier when you're standing, uh, it, you know, you're standing in front of each other or you're in a parent-teacher advisory meeting, or you're in the piazza and you're talking to each other, it's much easier to listen and take signals and think of yourself as people engaged in conversation. Very different phenomenon, I think, when you start taking these conversations to Twitter or Facebook, and you're just trying to see if you can get likes or retweets or what have you. Um, and then a third thing is, I think, a whole bunch of these norms about youth behavior. And when it comes to things about clothing or hairstyles, and, and here there's partly generational uh, debates that, you know, what seems appropriate to me might not seem appropriate to, you know, somebody who's a generation younger than me. Uh, there's cultural norms depending on, you know, race and ethnicity. And, you know, I think these have always been with us. I mean, these are not uh, unlike some of the stuff, you know, Jerry Grant wrote about uh, unfolding half a century or 60 years ago in school systems uh, of the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Uh, there is a racial overlay that sometimes wasn't there back then, but these are not new fights. Um, but I think what happens, especially in our really polarized environment, when everything winds up on MSNBC or Fox, when we're all on Twitter and Facebook all the time, is that things which used to be a small neighborhood dust up now become nationally important fights over whether or not this student should wear this dress to her prom. And it becomes much harder for us to actually exercise restraint or moderation. Um, so look, yeah, I mean, I think we need to teach, uh, we need to teach as kids the same thing we've always needed to teach about moderation and thoughtfulness and empathy. Uh, we need to exercise some due discipline um, on ourselves. But I think, you know, more than anything, we've got to remember that, look, only you know, social media, 80, 90% of the traffic on social media is driven by 10 to 15% of the country. Uh, the people who wind up on MSNBC and Fox are the loudest and most extreme members of either congressional delegation. Like we have created this echo chamber, which is in the business of generating interest by getting us to go at each other's throats. And the 80, 85% of us who don't want all this have gotten sucked into a maelstrom and I, you know, we wrote this book because I think all of the other stuff is important, but we've got to start by remembering that we're actually the four and five, and we got to stop letting our school board meetings and our news coverage and, and our conversations be driven by the one in five people who, for whatever reason, thrives on the chaos. 
I'm talking to Rick Hess and Pedro Nagara about their book, Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education, Teachers, College Press. Um, Pedro, they had some really interesting things, Teachers College Press, in their review of the book to say. And, um, you know, they talked about this really interesting dichotomy as well as, as well as the alliance that you guys found. What would you say was your... I don't know, biggest pleasant surprise about working with Rick? I know you guys have known each other, but what was the like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad we did this or favorite favorite thing that you discovered together? You know, I, I think uh, honestly, it was um, <laughs> Rick's reasonableness. <laughs> that is when presented with a set of arguments uh, that he felt made sense, he would acknowledge, okay, I can agree with that. Um, I also think that where he and I are able to find common ground most is that we're, we're pragmatists. That is that we recognize the complexity of the issues. We recognize there aren't simple solutions to a lot of these issues like choice and um, standardized testing and things like that. And so, um, and we also know that there are leaders out there, superintendents who are faced with tough decisions. And, um, and, and I think we both work with them and we know that when you're in that position, you can't just take an ideological position. You've got to figure out how do I make schools work and serve my kids well? And I think um, that allows us to have a dialogue that I think uh, hopefully others will see and say, that's, maybe that's not so bad, but I still think it takes a certain amount of courage to do this because people are afraid that they acknowledge a point uh, made by the other side that they'll be seen as a traitor. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm not afraid of that. And uh, I don't think Rick is either. That's a great point. And I know you all have probably been in the same position where I've been with somebody um, very, you know, uh, formally. And then at the end of our encounter, they'll say, gosh, you're not so bad after all. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, no, I actually didn't think you were that bad, but okay, I guess, I guess that was the preconception because we all come, um, we all come to those preconceptions. And, you know, you know, we're all on Twitter. Um, people should, by the way, follow you if they, uh, because there are interesting things you post and say at Pedro A. Nagara at Rick Hess 99. Um, but I think one of the reasons a lot of our colleagues and friends and brethren um, rush to those battles, I'm guilty of it, we're all guilty of it, is you're like, you're afraid someone's not going to read the book. They're not going to read, you know, straight up with Rick Hesed and Week. They're not going to pick up a book that's this big. We're all so worried that there's, as Michael Moe calls it, infobesity. There's so much coming at us. We can barely get through our inbox. We can barely get through our books. They were like, I better tell you today exactly what I think. And so I think um, calling for restraint um, is, uh, is really, is really interesting. So as we kind of close down here, um, and, you know, we talked, uh, as we were getting into this about kids and, and Rick, you have two now, is that right? Two. Yep, yes, and, I do. Uh, and Pedro, you have five. And I'm wondering if you could give, um, our listeners and audience and friends and colleagues advice on, um, what they should think as they're engaging in, school with their kids as they're engaging in the politics of school should they what questions should they ask um how should they become engaged because as you know we're always hearing from people like they didn't realize that this was happening so i think we can all agree that information is in fact power 
um, as uh, trite as that often sounds. What should we tell people out there to do to make this whole environment better in terms of the schooling of their kids? I, I think we have to be um, really thoughtful consumers of education, um, listening to our kids, being careful about their experiences, but then also thinking about the other kids who don't have the luxury of choice that um, I think both Rick and I have. I, you know, my kids have gone to public school, but I didn't just send them off and wish them the best. I made sure they got into the right classrooms with the right teachers. And I could do that because I have the ability to influence those decisions. Not every parent does. And so I, I think it's really important that parents um, look closely at what's happening to their kids and think about the other kids whose parents aren't, don't have the time, the resources to advocate effectively for their children because they're usually the ones who get um, the short end of the stick. Well said. Yeah, you know, Jeannie, and actually, let me, uh, you know, one, uh, you asked Pedro kind of what he got from working with me. I, I'll let me answer that by way of getting to the parents. Yes. You know, for me, it was funny. Pedro and I decided to do this, uh, I think it was the fall of 2019. So a couple of months before any of us had ever heard of COVID, um, before kind of America's, uh, the racial unrest of summer 2020. And so for me, doing this with Pedro was enormously heartening. Um, all of the frustrations that I felt with the way schools responded the spring of 2020, all of my frustration with how they approached remote learning, uh, with what, with the way the conversations about race were playing out, it was just so reassuring to be able to engage with Pedro. And Pedro would look at this from a very different lens for me. But just like he said, when I would fire off arguments or thoughts or reflections, he wouldn't try to pull a word out of context and jump on my back. We would talk about the ideas and the facts and what we saw and why we saw it differently. And we give Americans very little room for this. Parents have very few opportunities for this, especially in some of these conversations around say mask mandates in school or critical race theory. Um, parents and educators on either side are terrified of speaking up in a public forum because they're gonna get doxxed or assaulted or attacked. And we've got to work like heck to create room and opportunity um, for Americans, for parents, for educators to be able to do what Pedro and I did. And Partly it was because Pedro and I, uh, you know, Pedro is just an incredibly thoughtful, reasonable, pragmatic guy. Partly it's because the writing a book creates a certain context. Um, but it's also partly because Pedro and I are privileged enough that we don't worry too much about being canceled. Uh, we're old enough and have done enough stuff that it's just harder to cancel us. Well, that speaks to me a lot of what, how, how to think about parents. We need to give parents the power not to be canceled. If parents don't have access to choices, it's too easy for them to feel captive. If parents nominally have choices, but they don't have transportation for their child, or they don't have information, as Pedro you know, powerfully says, then these aren't really meaningful choices. Um, when we talk about parental voice being heard in schools, whether these are private schools or charter schools or district schools, we need to make sure that it's not just a parent speaking into a whirlwind, but the parents actually feel like they've got a microphone in front of them. So we need to empower parents in all kinds of ways. And then what parents need to do with that, I think, is not worry about macro trends or what they're reading about happening in some weird district they've never encountered in you know, Oregon or Arizona, 
What they need to do is worry about what's happening in their child's school, in their child's school district. What can they do? How can they connect with neighbors? How can they make real impactful change? I think we wind up in this internet age encouraging people to spend way too much time on things over which they have no control and then getting so frustrated that they bring this, these, this frustration into the places where they can actually make a real difference. And I think we need to flip that. We need to empower people and encourage people to focus on the things where they can have a real impact on their kid, their classroom, their kid's school. And I think that sense of efficacy would start to take our, our conversations about school improvement and about schooling in a much healthier direction. Pedro, you, you good with that? I am good with uh, those comments Rick just made. And, and I think that, um, again, if you, if you look at schools through the eyes of parents, um, you tend to realize that any, every parent wants very similar things for their kids. They want to be in a safe school. They want to be in a school where they know that their child is being challenged, but also cared for. Um, and, and those are things that we should want for all parents. And so I, I think if we approach this conversation about schooling um, from that standpoint, um, I hopefully will be a little bit more open-minded um, and less likely to take um, simply ideological positions, but more thoughtful positions about what's in the best interest of, of kids everywhere. You know, this podcast reminds me of whoever said that um, if you love your work, it's not work at all. This has been um, fabulous. I feel incredibly uh, grateful and privileged in particular to have really the opportunity to have a discussion like this, um, to be able to have you guys um, have this have this talk, to be able to read the book, um, and particularly because it's my birthday today. And so- Happy birthday, Jeannie. Thank you. And I am, I am grateful- Happy birthday. Thank you. And I'm grateful that you guys are out there to, um, to think through this and to help us through difficult discussions. It's so important. Um, and so thank you for joining um, in Piazza. And as, uh, as we say, see you soon or ci vediamo. <laughs> for having us on. Ciao. You can find In Piazza wherever you get your podcast. This is a special project of the Center for Education Reform and GSV. Thanks for listening to In Piazza. Ci vediamo, or as we say in English, we'll see you soon. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Mull. Ciao.